Well, I would ask that if you didn't open your Bible yet, that you would go ahead and open it. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. We're having a little bit of glitch issues with our technology this morning. So please do open your Bible to that passage. Uh, We're going to look through it in just a moment. As you turn there, I do want to give you a little heads up about what's going to be coming this summer in the way of what we're going to be studying. Uh, In fact, I would say this, you will not want to miss, if you're going to be in town, if you're here this summer, you will not want to miss what we're going to be going through. Uh, The reason for that is if you come and you apply what we learn over the course of this summer, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to be more wise at the end of the summer than when you started the summer. And the reason I can make that guarantee is that we are going to be looking at the Proverbs. And so it's going to be a really fun study together. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at a proverb a day. And so when you come on next Sunday, July 1st, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 1. Whatever Sunday that proverb is, that's the proverb we're going to be looking at. So you can go ahead and get ready this week by reading Proverbs chapter 1. Alongside that, we're going to ask that you actually read a proverb a day. So each day of the week that you would read that proverb for that day, and hopefully by the end of the summer, we as a church will have read through the book of Proverbs twice together. And I think that will have a really great impact on you. So I encourage you. Uh, to be here next week as we start that new sermon series. But today, we are closing out our sermon series called Grace and Peace to You, which has been a verse-by-verse study through the book of First Thessalonians. In this letter, Paul, the apostle who had been a persecutor of Christians, now had become a proclaimer of Christians and started all these different churches. He is writing one of these churches that he started in the city of Thessalonica. Already in this book, he has given them a a ton of great knowledge and teaching about certain areas of life. But here in chapter 5, as he begins to end his letter, as he gets to the very end, he literally goes into full-on fire hose mode, okay? So you just got to be ready this morning. He literally is going to go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing with all of these detailed instructions that he wants you to understand about the Christian life. Now, as I was reading this, I thought to myself that that one of the great parenting shifts that I've noticed recently in our home is that as our kids have gotten older, the amount reduced dramatically. That we leave with babysitters before we go somewhere has reduced dramatically. Uh, I can remember when our kids were babies and toddlers, it seemed like the final instructions that we would give to those babysitters took about an hour to go through, right? You list these details of they need to eat this specific food, warm to this specific temperature at this specific time. You need to, if they're crying at this time, it means this. If they're crying at that time, it means that. If you change a diaper, you need to put the PPTP over the wee-wee or you're going to get sprayed. These are very important matters that we would give to our babysitters and it would take forever to go through. Nowadays, you want to know what instructions we give to our babysitters? Do your best to keep them alive. That's it. That's it. Feed them. Let them sleep. Repeat. That's all you got to do, and we are good. But here's the thing. A younger, the younger a child is, the more instructions are needed. Well, you have to remember that Paul is writing to a church that is very, very young. These are spiritual infants And so he knows they need as much instruction as they can get. They need the details of what they need to do in order to live the Christian life rightly. And so this text is an inclusion of a fundamental details about what it looks like to be a healthy church of believers. 
Now, as we go through this and as we read these, I don't think many of these, if you've been in church very long, I don't think many of these are going to be new to you, but that doesn't mean that they're unimportant. In fact, these are the fundamentals that if we get, it will make all the difference in the world in this church setting. Uh, one of the, my favorite leadership books is written by John Wooden, and it was a, a, he's a legendary UCLA basketball coach, incredible book on leadership. But one of my favorite things about that book is that he tells the story of how all the different players that come through his system, all the different players that come onto his team, at the beginning of every season, no matter how good they are, no matter how prolific they are, he sits them down and spends an entire practice teaching them how to properly lace their shoelaces, right? To tie their shoelaces. Every single time, he makes them drill over and over and over again until they can do it correctly because he knows what? If they can't get that one fundamental action down, there's no way they're going to be able to comprehend all the different things that he's going to try to teach them in that year. Well, that's similar to what Paul is doing here. These are fundamental characteristics that make up a healthy church. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. As we read through these lists of things that are probably not new, I want you to simply do an assessment, both of our church corporately, but also of you as an individual Christ follower, how are you living out these fundamental details of the Christian life? Well, let's look at them together. We'll just go through it as the text gives it to us. The very first characteristic of a healthy church that Paul provides is this. They love their spiritual leaders. They love their spiritual leaders. Now, of course, this is one of my personal favorites. I'm very thankful this is in here. But to be clear, I did not make this number one for my own personal reasons. I'm simply giving you what Paul tells you. Look at verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, and when he talks about brothers, he's talking about those who are Christians, those who have been adopted into the family of God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You see, Paul knows that if any church is going to make a long-term impact, if a church is going to be fruitful, if it's going to make a difference in the city that it's in, in the world that it's in, one of the key ingredients that must exist is a very healthy relationship between a congregation and its spiritual leaders. Now, of course, this would absolutely entail the role of pastor, but one of the interesting things that I notice about this text is that he does not list any titles or positions. He doesn't describe a hierarchy of leadership, but instead he simply describes what spiritual leaders do so that when you look around our own church setting, you'll know them when they see them. What does he say? He says they do three things. True spiritual leaders, number one, they labor among you. Uh, you may not have noticed this because we don't see this a lot here in San Francisco, but as I've noticed the trend of megachurches around the nation and these churches that, that grow to be huge, massive enterprises, one trend that I've noticed is that some pastors or spiritual leaders um, get very good at writing books. They get very good at speaking at major conferences of, of giving a lot of social media output to their following, but I've sadly seen that some of those same leaders are very disconnected from the very churches that God has called them to lead. They're not involved in the day-to-day -day ministry of the church. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. The word labor is a very intense word. These are men and women who are vitally connected to the body, doing the work that is needed, the very hard work that is needed 
to help the body as a whole flourish and grow. grow. If you were around this week at all during our summer quest, you would have seen these kind of leaders all over this building, pouring their life and their energy and in their time into the kids of this church family. This is what spiritual leaders do. It was an amazing thing to see. Second, he says, these leaders are over you in the Lord, which again is not a phrase about position or status, but what he's pointing to is these spiritual leaders' responsibility to provide oversight and care and protection to the flock. He says all of this is is in the Lord. These are in spiritual matters. They are constantly looking around for wolves that are trying to attack the flock. They're constantly looking for false teachings and being aware of those false teachings so that they can properly instruct and they are caring for the flock. This is a very high calling. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, uh, he's talking to the congregation and he says this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So here's the thing. If you're here in this room and you're one of our ministry leaders, if you're a spiritual leader, what he's saying is this. You will give an account to God for the souls that he has entrusted to you. I take this very seriously as a pastor. I know the other ministers on our staff team take this exercise over that we are held, we are, we will be held accountable. Therefore, we want to exercise oversight and care and protection of the flock. The last thing Paul says is that they admonish you, which is a word that we don't really use, admonish, but it's a word to, to instruct people. But also, this instruction also includes a lot of time a corrective influence. So when he says admonish, he's talking about leading the church in such a way that where they see the church veering from truth or they see individuals veering from their walks with Christ, they're there to give corrective influence, to teach them God's word, to give them truth, to bring them right back to a good path with God. This is what he's talking about here. Now, as you think about that text, what he's saying is this, when you see leaders that are doing those things, And I can think of many here in this church alone. When you see leaders who are doing those things, how are we as a congregation to respond to those leaders? He says two things. We are to esteem them, which is a word of respect. But then he also says we are to do what? We are to esteem them very highly in love. We are to show those spiritual leaders love. We are to demonstrate love to them. I'm very grateful that I have experienced very little hostility or anything like that here in this setting, but I can't tell you how many of my Christian friends who, who are leaders are in churches where it seems like a competition to see how many people can criticize the pastor, how many people can go against the pastor, how many people can go in and go against the leadership that God has given. Here, Paul says to Christians, go in a better direction. He says, replace hostility and distrust with love and respect. Now, here's a clear thing that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that leaders are to be put on some kind of pedestal, right? I'm not saying that leaders are above accountability. I've said this many times in this sermon series, where a leader, even a pastor, is in doctrinal area, where a leader is in unrepentant sin, it is your responsibility to challenge that leader. You are to be the church in that moment. You are to be a fellow brother and sister who brings that leader back to a place of repentance. But the question is this. When you criticize, when you speak against, when you challenge that leader, do you do so out of love or do you do so out of hostility? 
That's what he's putting in front of us this morning. As you assess your own spiritual health today, how are your relationships with the leaders that labor among you? Would you say, if you're being honest, that you esteem them and love? Do you encourage them and come alongside them, or do you criticize and, and push back against them? I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether it's here or whether it's in another church that God takes you in your life. My prayer for you is that you'd be part of what Paul is saying here. Esteem and love your leaders. Do this well. He says this is a characteristic of a healthy church. God has placed leaders for a specific purpose, but then he moves on because he doesn't want you to hear him saying something he's not saying. He is not saying that it is the work of the pastors or the work of the leaders to do all the ministry. That's why he says what he does in verse 14. Look with me. He says, and we urge you brothers. So again, he's saying brothers, all Christians, not just leaders. And we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Here's what Paul is getting at. In healthy churches, he says, all Christians take responsibility for the spiritual health of the others in the congregation. He says there is a mutual responsibility in healthy churches for ministry. It's not just one person. Uh, If you look around this room, there are probably 250, 300 people in this room. You take into account all the church members that are not here this week. It's a lot of people. There's no way, it is absolutely impossible for me or for a small group of our leaders to provide all the physical and spiritual needs that are in this room alone. But that's because the body was never meant to be like that. Paul says healthy churches, in healthy churches, it is an all-in team effort. We are all looking for ways to minister to one another. We're all looking to see where, where is this person in their faith? Where is that person in their faith? And how can I come alongside them? So for instance, what does he say? He says, one of your responsibilities in this church is to admonish the idol, to instruct and provide challenge to those who are idle. Now the idol here are those in the church who are lazy or disorderly or, or just simply living in unrepentant sin. He says, as you look around the church, as you see people who are just constantly pulling and pulling and pulling from the body, but they're never vitally involved, they're never meeting the ministry needs of others, you are to admonish them, you are to correct them, you are to help them to see that they have a part to play in the body. Where you see a brother or sister living in unrepentant sin, you go to that person in love, not angrily, not as a self-righteous individual, but knowing that God has given you grace, you go alongside them and you walk with them, helping them to see their error. You as the body of Christ are called to admonish one another. It doesn't say when you see someone in sin, just go tell the pastor. It says you have that role of admonishing the idol. Second group Paul mentions are the faint-hearted. And he says, when you see someone that is faint-hearted, you don't admonish them. That's just going to discourage them even more. What does he say? He says, encourage them. Encourage the faint-hearted. You see, that's exactly what Paul had done for the church in Thessalonica in chapter 4. If you remember, it was there that they were grieving over these Christians who had died. They were worried about that they weren't going to be around for the second coming of Christ. And what does Paul do? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't get angry at them. What does he do? He comforts them. He encourages them with truth. He says, you too are called to do that. On a weekly basis, the people in this room that sit around you are faced with temptations that you don't know about. They're faced with trials that many of them we don't know about. 
And that's why you as the body are constantly going to be, should be looking here on Sunday mornings. Who needs encouragement today? Right before the service, right after the service, instead of just getting with your group that you always meet with, you need to have your eyes open to say, who needs a word of encouragement today? God has put you here to do that. Finally, he looks at the last group and he says what? Also help the weak. That word help literally implies holding on to someone. Holding on to someone. Using by the to hold someone who is weak up. I think it's interesting. He doesn't tell us what he means by the weak. He just makes this broad uh, picture of people. The weak. What's he talking about? He doesn't say if it's spiritually weak. He doesn't say if it's physically weak, like being sick. He doesn't say if it's the weak in the body, those who don't have any status. You have to remember there were slaves in this body. So he doesn't say what it is. I think that's intentional. We are to look for those who are weak in any way and to use the strength that God has provided us to help them in their weakness. Uh, that can take the form of many simple gestures. I mean, one great way great to help the weak is to, to look at that individual who is maybe struggling through their marriage and to pray for them on a Sunday morning, to pray for their strength in that marriage, to pray for the marriage for God to bring that marriage back together to go to a church member's house who maybe is struggling with sickness or maybe that church member in the hospital and and not just wait for the pastor to go do it, but you to take your time and to go visit them in the hospital, to pray for them, to encourage them in the Lord. For you, I know we have ESL in this room. Many people are involved in ESL. It's taking an immigrant here in the city of San Francisco that's in our midst and saying, here's the thing, we want to love you. We want to help you to learn English. We want to help you maneuver all these systems that are very different probably from the culture you came to. We help the weak. That's what he says. Each one of us in this room have to be mutually responsible for the ministry that happens in a church. A healthy church will not consist of a pastor or a group of pastors that does all the ministry. If you think about what he's calling you to, you will quickly realize that you need a very vital characteristic if you're going to do all these things, if you're going to admonish the idol, if you're going to help the weak. What do you need? The next one. In healthy churches, they have patience for everyone. At the very end of that list, what does he say? Be patient with them all. You see, the church in Thessalonica, just like our church this morning, consisted of a very complex group of individuals. These were individuals coming from different socioeconomic classes. They were coming from different ethnicities. They had different personalities. And then you look at it, they had people who were optimists and those who were pessimists. They had people who were cynical and people who were gullible. They had leaders and they had followers. They had extroverts and they had introverts. They had the socially astute and the socially awkward, just like our church, right? In any church where the cross has brought a diverse group of people together, there's going to be the need for this one key characteristic, and that is patience with one another. Patience. In fact, if there's one lesson pastoral ministry in a diverse setting like San Francisco has taught me, it is the need for patience. Because here's the thing, people do not become wise overnight. People do not become spiritually mature overnight. People don't just listen to one sermon or they don't just listen to one word of encouragement that you have and all of a sudden everything's better. In a church full of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God, imperfect people like all of us are, it requires a great deal of patience for one another. 
There are going to be people in this church that their personality continually grates against you. It requires extra grace. And Jesus calls us to give that extra grace to one another. You see, the temptation, I think, for a lot of Christians is to only minister to people that are just like them. To minister to people to whom they're comfortable with. To minister to people from their own ethnicity. To minister to people from their own socioeconomic class. To minister alongside people that have the same musical preference. The same worship preference that you do. But that doesn't require the patience that Paul calls for in this text. And in fact, it's the patience that will lead you to become a healthier Christian. You see, the more that you grow in patience, here's what that reveals. It reveals the more that you are coming to understand the patience that God has shown you. The more you're patient with other people and you have grace for other people, that you extend kindness to other people, the more that that reveals that you realize, man, God has shown unbelievable kindness and patience to me and my doubts and my disappointments and my failures and my disobedience. Jesus has given me this kind of patience. Therefore, we are called to have that same kind of patience for others. One of the hardest times to do that is when people treat you harshly, when they hurt you, when they treat you in an evil way. And that's why he says what he does in verse 15. He says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to every one. He says, in any setting, whether it's in the church or with the outside world, those who are unbelievers, there are going to be times where you are hurt, where people treat you unjustly, where they treat you with evil intent. He says, the response of a Christian should be different than the response of the world. The natural response is to do what? Whatever somebody, however someone treats us, what do we do? We respond with that same kind. So if they treat us with kindness, then what do we do? We treat them with kindness. If they treat us with evil, what do we do? We treat them with evil. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is turn on the news right now, or you can look at the political situation, you can look at social media. You will see this back and forth, evil for evil, good for good, evil for evil, good for good. But Paul says we as Christians are to be different. And this was a core piece of the early Christian teaching. You have to remember, they were being persecuted by everyone. There are tons of people that were treating them with evil. And how they responded mattered. That's why you see this throughout the New Testament. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.9, says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This, of course, stems from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, an entire upside-down way of living. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul is saying if we respond with vengeance, if we respond evil for evil, we will look no different than the world. But in a huge non-Christian setting of the setting of Thessalonica, he said, in kind, you are different. If when people hurl evil at you, you respond in kindness and patience, you will represent me. And he says the same to us today. Now you look at all these things and you say, my goodness, how is anybody supposed to have this kind of perspective? 
How are we to, supposed to idle, admonish the idle and continually strengthen the weak? And how are we supposed to show patience to everybody and return evil with, with blessing and goodness? Well, it does take an entirely different perspective. And that's why we see what he says in verses 16 through 18. If you would look with me there. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, in a healthy church, there is a culture of continual God-focused joy, prayer, and thanks. He says, this is the will of God. So many of us wonder, what is the will of God for us? He said, it is that you have a culture of God-focused joy, prayer, and thanks. That's why he says what he does. He says what? Rejoice when? Always. When do we pray? Without ceasing. When do we give thanks? In all circumstances. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying this is the comprehensive attitude that should be evident in the Christian life. He's not saying, well, you have to pray literally every moment. He's saying this is our overall attitude. We are constantly focused on God in such a way that we're relying on him in prayer, that we're joyfully praising him for what he's doing, and we're giving thanks for what he's done. He says this is a heart that has been shaped by the grace of God. When you truly know who God is and what he has done, you cannot help but respond in these ways. Uh, The person that's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, he was a incredible example of this. One of the key stories that we talked about with our kids this week at at our SummerQuest BBS was the story of Paul and Silas getting thrown into prison. I don't know if you've read that text recently, but I'll just tell you this. It doesn't matter how bad your week has been this week. It was not as bad as Paul's in that situation. You look at that text and a number of things happened to Paul. Paul was unjustly accused and arrested. He had done nothing, and yet he was arrested for it. He was stripped naked, which can you imagine the shame and embarrassment of that? He was beaten to the point of exhaustion. And then they took him and Silas, and they threw him in what was called the innermost part of the prison, the jail at that time. Now, when we think of jails, they do sound bad, but they've got a lot of modern conveniences by insects and rats and have those modern conveniences. Imagine yourself surrounded by insects and rats and the smell of human feces and urine and all of this is around you. You're stalked there. You're in pain with the beating that they've got you ripped up. And yet what does it say about Paul and Silas in that moment? In Acts chapter 16, it tells us that they were found constantly both praying and singing praises to God. You see, Paul is not telling the church in Thessalonica to do something that he wasn't experiencing himself. Paul had come to realize that his joy and his hope was not in his circumstances. This happens so easily for each one of us. We we put our hope and our joy in what's going on in our lives. But Paul says there is a better way. Put your hope and trust in God. No matter what circumstances a Christian faces, they can have joy. They can give thanks because they have been saved from their sin. They have been saved from the domain of darkness, and they have been made a son and daughter of God. They've been given an eternal covenant relationship with God that can never be taken away by the circumstances of this life. He says a healthy church will have this environment of joy, constant prayer, constant giving thanks for what God has done. We look at the fifth characteristic. If you look in verses 19 through 22, it says that a healthy church will test everything, 
holding on to the good and abstaining from the evil. Verse 19. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, in this early church period, you have to remember that they, didn't, they had the Old Testament, but they didn't have the Gospels, right? They didn't have the teachings of Jesus written out. They didn't have the whole New Testament that we have today. And so what was happening in the early churches, teaching was coming at this young church from every direction. Some of it, like Paul's teaching, was true, but a lot of it was false. And Paul realizes in this moment, the church can be tempted to do one of two things— On the one hand, they can say, you know what, we're just going to become cynical. And we're going to treat every word of truth, every prophecy with contempt. We're just not going to listen to any of it. On the other hand, they could become gullible. And they could just take in everything and think that everything's true with the result that there's absolute chaos in the church. And so Paul looks at this situation and he gives them this instruction. He says, don't do either of those things. What does he say? Test everything. He says, show discernment. In healthy churches, there is a congregation that is constantly looking at the teaching that they are receiving, and they are asking, is this true? You see, we as a church have what they do not. Well, we do have the spirit, which they had, but we also have the entire counsel of God's word. There's not ever a time that that I would want you to listen to my sermons, to listen to the teaching that we give you, and say, well, I'll just accept it because Ryan said it. No, a wise church, a healthy church always is discerning. They're looking at what they hear in sermons. They're looking at what they're reading Christian books. They're looking at what they see on the Wall Street Journal, and they're saying, is this in alignment with the Word of God? They're asking the Spirit to give them wisdom about what is true and what is false. This is so important that you as a church do this in our day because you are inundated with news You think about all the news that you see on social media, all the news that you see on the main networks, all of the news, all the reading that you can do, all the sermons that are existent today. It takes great discernment to know what is true. He says in healthy churches, they don't quench the spirit. They they don't show the contempt toward teaching, but they test everything. They hold on to what is good, and then they abstain from what is evil, from what is false. This is what healthy churches do. Now, that's the list of all these instructions that that Paul has given. And if you're like me this week, as I was reading through this, I was trying to process every single thing. At the end, I was like, my goodness, this is impossible. I can't do this. I can't perfectly admonish the idol. I can't give proper oversight to the church at all times. I can't always help the weak. I can't do all these things. My sanctification is really, really tiring if I'm trying to do this on my own. But praise be to God, he doesn't end in verse 22. Because as he looks at all of these efforts that we are to make in our own sanctification, in our growth, in our health of a a body of Christ, he gives us this last thing, and it's a prayer, and it's verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, the very last characteristic of a healthy church and a healthy Christian is this. They trust God to do what only he can do. As they work, as they seek to do all these things, they trust and they rely on God because at the end of the day, they realize, I can't do this on my own. 
Only God can sanctify me. That's a word that means to set apart. Only he can set me apart completely. Only God can make me 100% blameless when I stand before him face to face at his return. If you have not memorized and written down verse 24, let me encourage you. Write this verse down and put it all over the place in your home. Verse 24 says what? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In those moments when you see your own battle with sin and you wonder, am I ever going to have victory over this sin? He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. In those moments when you look at those doubts and trials of your life and you wonder, am I going to be able to endure to the end? He is surely faithful. He will do it. When you come to the point of death and you wonder, is my relationship with God secure? Will he truly bring me into his presence for eternity where there is fullness of joy? He is faithful. He will surely do it. I know of no more encouraging words in all of Scripture than verse 24, that what God starts, God will complete. And friends, that this morning is what should give us hope. That is this morning what should drive us to try to do all these things, to encourage the faint-hearted, to be a part of the body of Christ, to have patience for everyone. It is the incredible love that God has for us and that he started salvation through sending his son to die on the cross, resurrected, and he's going to bring that salvation to its fulfillment. He will present you 100% blameless at his return. This morning as we think about this, we have the opportunity to respond by taking communion together. As we take communion, really taking communion is a simple reminder that Jesus is going to complete what he started in your life. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember the work that Jesus has started. Through his death, he took the punishment for sin that each one of you deserved. You were a sinner, you are a sinner, but he took the punishment And in that act on the cross, he imputed his perfect righteousness to you. That is worth celebrating this morning. As we take the cup, we remember that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. When when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. You are cleansed of your sin. And you now have an eternal covenant that is unbreakable, a relationship with God that will last for eternity. We come to this table proclaiming to the world that Jesus is going to finish what he started. His salvation has brought us to a relationship with God. And there's a day where he will return and he will make that relationship unfathomable for all of eternity. Today we have the opportunity to do this today. I pray that as we take communion that you would be encouraged. That you would look at the communion table and realize once again it is his work that we rely on for our salvation. It is not our own. And that as you do so, that you will love Jesus more. That you will go out and strive to be a healthy body of Christ, living out his call on our lives.